Uh, my name is Joel, and I have the, the honor of bringing the sermon to you this morning. So, I want to start by saying that I, because of my um, work that I do, and um, before I did local church um, work vocationally, I did college ministry. And because of being in those uh, circles, I, find my, I've, I have found myself over the years frequently going to um, pastor meetings or ministry conferences or ministry, ministry leader meetings, um, those types of gatherings. And they're almost always weird. Um, because inevitably, and if some of you have been to these, maybe you know what I mean, uh, before too long, and this is, this, it's especially worse, I've noticed it's especially worse when the people don't really know each other very well at these meetings. But before too long, uh, someone in the meeting makes a comment about how many people are going to their services. Uh, and then another person makes a comment about how big the budget is and how the Lord has really blessed their giving at their church. And then before I know it, I'm starting to make comments about these, these programs that I've led that have been such a huge success and just how God has blessed them so much. And just before I realize I'm sucked into this comparison game, right? I'm chiming in about the great, the great things that God is doing in the ministry that I happen to be leading. Um, and so I'm starting there, and, and you, you, can, you can probably apply that if you're in a different line of work or a different, or I know parenting is another example of this. Sometimes people compare themselves as parents to each other. I'm starting here because my main idea for this morning, we're going to talk about Philippians chapter 3. Really my main idea, one of my main ideas at least, is that I think we all feel, under the surface, we all feel some anxiety about our value, our worth, our acceptability, what our purpose is, whether we're doing enough to realize that purpose. Um, We all feel that, and we have a tendency as humans, we have a tendency to resolve that anxiety by placing confidence in what Scripture and what Paul calls fleshly things. Place that confidence in the things that we brag about at ministry meetings. (laughs) that tendency, this is my main idea, that tendency, that pull, that temptation is fundamentally opposed to finding our confidence in the good news of Jesus and what has been accomplished. That tendency, that, that's the gospel. The gospel tells us that we can place all our confidence in what has already been done, what God has already done in Christ. That's really my main idea. But what we're gonna, I want to unpack that, and I want to unpack that through um, some verses from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if you've been around for the past several weeks, you know we've been going through Philippians. This is actually the second to last sermon in the series through Philippians. Uh, and we're going to look at the first um, section of chapter 3. So if you have a scripture t- uh, text with you, feel free to go to it. I did include uh, kind of the key sections on the slide, so you can follow that way as well. Um, so let me, let me pray for this discussion before, before I dive in. So pray with me. Lord, I, I pray that your gospel would be lifted up, your name would be honored. I pray our hearts would be drawn to relax in the assurance of what you have done out of your love for us today. I pray we'd be, we'd say no to fleshly confidence this morning. So do that work today. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 3, this is from the NRSV translation. Um, Paul is saying, and oh, real quick, take that off the screen. Um, 
I wanted to recall a little bit of Paul of what Ethan said last week. If you heard Ethan's sermon, fantastic sermon last week, he talked about, he emphasized the context from which Paul was writing. And he really emphasized, for me, this actually, Ethan, this was helpful for me, by the way. Um, for me, he emphasized that Paul was writing to a small group of people that he loved. And the context of his letter was he wasn't sure. Maybe these would be his last words to them, right? These might be his last words to these people he cares deeply about. So keep that in mind as, you, as we read through this next section. Because um, it has, as Ethan said, it has a tendency to change when Paul gives commands and directions. If you realize he's saying that out of love to people he might not see again, it just really changes the tone. Um, so here's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, hence the name of the letters being Philippians. He says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship the Spirit of God, and boast in Jesus Christ, and listen, have no confidence in the flesh. So what in the world? There's a lot of, there's a lot of weird words here. Uh, dogs, mutilators, flesh, circumcision. Um, and we're going to talk about circumcision. Um, I'm anticipating a lot of the men are going to be wincing a lot while I'm talking about this. But um, what's going on here? What in the world is he talking about? So I want to give a little bit of background on this. The Jews, Paul was Jewish. He was writing to a mixed audience of some people who have Jewish backgrounds, some people who have Gentile backgrounds. But the Jewish people, and most of you probably know this, it's not going to be a surprise to you, the Jewish people have been historically marked, literally marked by circumcision for millennia. Um, and the circumcision was how the Jews knew externally it was a sign that they were God's people. It was the sign of God's covenant that God gave to Abraham to pass on to his people, out of which he created a nation, out of which... Uh, the Messiah came. So really, um, it really was a mark of, of God's promise to them. God's chosenness of them, it was marked by this, by this act. So it was an external, physical marker on these people. And really, it provided, for a long time, it provided the Jews a sense of their assurance of being chosen by God, being the, the promise. They received God's promise. So they could say to themselves, we know we are God's chosen people because of this mark that's on us. That was given to Abraham and passed on down. But in addition, especially over time, centuries, millennia, it seems as though it grew also into an ethnic and a cultural boundary that separated themselves from others. So you can start to sense historically that it kind of became this this, uh, feeling of not only do we have assurance that we are God's chosen people, but we also know who is not God's chosen people because they do not have this mark. They do not have circumcision. We know who is outside the people of God. We know who does not keep God's good law. We know who does not live in the way God wants them to live because they are not circumcised. In other words, those heathen, pagan, Romans, and Greeks, for example, the very people who were becoming Christians in the early churches that Paul was planting around the Mediterranean basin, (laughs) those were the people. And they were entering the church. They were starting to follow Jesus. They were convinced that Jesus was God's Messiah. Um, and so this, I think, I'm breezing over a, like I'm breezing over like whole seminary courses and textbooks right now, by the way. Uh, but this is why, and it's really important for what I want to emphasize this morning. This is why the ba- this is the background and basis for why circumcision was such a controversy in the early church. We read texts like this, uh, and from our vantage point, so much later in time and culture, we can be like, "What in the world is going on here? Why are people so up in arms about this? Why is this seem- Why is he calling people dogs and evil workers?" about circumcision. Like, why is this such a massive deal? I think it's because of this, because a millennia of cultural identification is being disrupted, ultimately by Jesus and the gospel. 
So one way that I think is helpful to think about this is that something like circumcision, this external, this marker, physical marker, which was intended as something to remind the Jews, listen to this, this was intended to remind the Jews that their confidence should be in God because God is the source of the promise. God is the source of the covenant. This marker was supposed to remind them, keep your confidence in God, over time was becoming distorted into a symbol of their confidence in themselves because of their own chosenness. Confidence in God being distorted to confidence in themselves because they were chosen. We must have done something to earn our chosenness because God picked us and not these other people, right? The sign is proof of that. What a terrible distortion. And I would argue, this is where I want to bring, this was, that was a lot of background history. I want to bring it back to today. I would argue that even though the particulars are very different for us, because we don't, at least that I'm aware of, we don't get into fights about circumcision, at least not in this church. <laughs> um, that's not something we care about on the surface level. We have a tendency to do the exact same thing, though, under the surface. That external things, external markers, things we can point to, things we can look at, things we can measure, those things that should remind us to keep our hope and our trust in God can become the very things that we become prideful in and wrongfully boast in as though we did something to earn it in the first place. As though we were chosen and blessed by God on some merits of our own. But the gospel says that God acted to save us even while we were sinners, even while we were opposed to what God was doing in the world. God acted to save us. The Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures, are full of the prophets telling the Jews, reminding them, you're stiff-necked, stubborn people. You did not do anything to, to earn your chosenness. God chose you anyways because God wanted to bless the entire world through you. So think back to my opening example about the pastor's meetings. The insidious thing, one of the insidious things about pastors, and I say this as one who is guilty of it, but I hope that that's clear. I'm not trying to throw stones. Because like I said, I get sucked into that so easily. But the insidious thing about pastors and ministry leaders bragging to each other about the impact of their work is that we might use language like, oh, God has really blessed this, or God has really brought people into people in the doors, or God has really blessed the giving. We might use the language of God blessing it, but the unspoken claim seems to usually be something like, I did something to, you know, make this happen, right? Like, I did something. I did something really well, and you can see it in the budget. But thanks, 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 God. You know, it's just really, really weird. Um, and it's actually, I would say, deeply insidious and deeply spiritually damaging. Um, but it crops up in other ways, too. I'm using an example of kind of vocational ministry. It crops up in so many other ways in all of our lives. So maybe, on some level, you might, maybe you believe that your own financial security, maybe you believe your own financial blessings, your own secure, security in your career, is due to your good behavior in God's eyes. Right? That's, a, that's an easy thing to slip into. Or maybe you believe your kids have turned out a certain way uh, that you envisioned, that you desired because you did everything right and God has blessed that. Or that you're physically healthy because of how seriously you've taken your faith. Or, you know, go down the line. Right? So many examples of ways we can just slide into this, this thinking. Um, and hear, hear me clearly on this. Things like physical health, things like financial security, they actually could be blessings from God. They could be. But the point is, one of the points is that it's dangerous to claim to know this and to link it to our own merits and deservedness. This is a dangerous thing to do. One reason is because then think about the shadow side of that. People who, then people who don't have financial security, people who don't, whose kids you don't think have turned out well or whatever, people who have had hard careers, 
Well, if the converse is true, then that means that they've done something to deserve God's punishment, right? They haven't been as good as you. They haven't been as, they're clearly not as chosen, as blessed as you because of something that they've done or not done or something you've done or not done, right? You can start to see, I think, where this starts to, where this gets really dark and really, really fundamentally opposed to the gospel, the good news of the gospel. It's just so easy, so tempting to grasp onto and control and leverage external markers and then make them the basis for our assurance and our confidence. Even if we use God language around it, right? We're real, what's, what are we really confident in? To the extent that we give in to that temptation, and it is really tempting, man, it's seductive. To the extent that we give in to that, we get pulled away from putting our confidence and assurance where it belongs, which is what God has done in Christ and that alone. This, I think, this is why Paul was so concerned and, I mean, angrily opposed to people who were trying to convince these new Gentile Christians to get circumcised. He's leveling such, I mean, to call them dogs, to call them evildoers, <laughs> strong language. And remember, these are his last words. This is like stuff he's like, this is important stuff to these people that he loves. He's saying, be careful, watch out for this tendency. Because there's people, there literally were people traveling around, following Paul around to these communities that they knew he was associated with and trying to convince people to get circumcised after he left. That's like literally what was happening. He's saying, be careful, watch out for them because they represent this very seductive tendency to look to fleshly external markers for assurance and confidence when that confidence needs to be placed in Christ alone. The gospel says no to that temptation. And Paul wanted the Philippians in this letter. He wanted them, and by extension us, as we read it today, even as far away as we are from the time of writing this, he wants us to also refuse that temptation and to cling to the assurance of the gospel pronouncement. And to press the point, here's where we're going to move on in the text. To press the point, Paul um, kind of displays the uh, fleshly confidence that he could claim in his own life. He displays his credentials and his own, what, what he could say could be his own source of assurance, which is in the next verses. Listen to this. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's circumcised on the eighth day, which is exactly when Jews were supposed to get circumcised. He's obviously in Israel, but not only is he in Israel, he's in a particular special tribe within Israel of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, someone who took the law extremely seriously, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, no one was more zealous for God's law than, than Paul was. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And, man, he, he just, this is his resume. This is like, hey, look, this is who I am. He's basically saying, this is what I could say about myself. This is the stuff I could be bragging about. And what I, I was trying to think about, what would this, like, what would this, um, how would this land on American, 21st century American ears? So I tried to, like, do a little bit of imaginative um, update of it. So, um, this is not scripture what I'm about to read. This is me <laughs> Imagine, reimagining it. Just let's be clear. Um, but I wanted to read this because this was, this was, I think this was helpful for me. Hopefully it's helpful for you. But here's what someone, here's kind of maybe our version of this list, right? Imagine someone saying this today. If anyone has reason to be confident, I have more. I was born to a poor family who immigrated here 
even a member of an oppressed people group. I worked myself up from nothing, earning my American citizenship. As to education, I have multiple degrees from Ivy League schools. As to influence, I have significant publications and am routinely asked to consult with senators and even White House staff. As to my reputation, I am widely considered to be the embodiment of the American dream and proof that this really is the greatest country in the world. But it's all trash next to knowing Christ. That's what Paul's about to say. It is all trash next to knowing the gospel of Christ. He scorns all of it, all of this. His zeal, his blamelessness, his righteousness under the, under the law, his um, tribal identification, all of it scorned. He's about to say, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. And more than that, listen to this, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I'm going to say more about this next phrase in a second. I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them as rubbish. That is the Greek word skubalon. I'm going to say more about that in a second too. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sh- I want to know the sharing of his sufferings. Listen to that phrase. I want to know the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death even if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. When Paul says here, when Paul says he has suffered the loss of all things, he's, he's not really being that hyperbolic, actually. I mean, he has lost a lot. He's suffered physical pain. He's suffered beatings. One of his other letters, he lists just the shipwrecks he's been through, the jailings he's been through. He's literally been st- like it's stoned, like attempted to be murdered multiple times, chased out of towns. Some scholars, uh, we don't know this for sure, but some scholars think that maybe because of his age and because of his... Uh, uh, social, social status, some scholars think he might have actually been betrothed at one point and lost that relationship because of following Christ, which is, that's just another layer of potential kind of pain he might have gone through. He's certainly been socially ostracized by at least the religious elites in the Jewish circles that, he's, that he moved through. He could have held on to this. He could have held on to his reputation. He could have held on to his schooling. He was schooled by Gamaliel, a really, really well-known. I mean, that is like going to an Ivy League school in his world. He could have held on to all of that. He could have been known as a well-educated, brilliant Jewish mind, a Roman citizen, powerful intellect. You know, he could have probably gotten the equi- whatever the equivalent of a tenure-track position at an elite university was for his time. <laughs> he probably could have had all of that, been well-known in his days for his accomplishments, and yet... Yet, what we know of him is that he was misunderstood, chased out of towns, marginalized by the, the powerful people in the Jewish world, and he died a martyr with these, just these tiny little pockets of followings around the Mediterranean world. That was where his life trajectory ended. So he really did suffer the loss of all things, and he really did consider all of that stuff trash. I mean, that word, skubalon, um, that's the only time that, word shows, that Greek word shows up in the New Testament. It's actually... Um, Kind of a rude word. I debated whether or not having you all say it and then tricking you into, you know, saying a Greek expletive. But it's kind of, it, it, basically, it means like, it means animal excrement. I'm using like the nicest kind of version of that. It, that is literally what that word means. Like I can, so we, when we say rubbish, that's like, that's like the nice British way of kind of saying that, that rude word in a, in a nice polite way, which the Brits, Brits like to do. Um, but that is what that word is. I mean, he is using powerful language. Like his, his 
Ivy League credentials. Think about that, that list, I, the Americanized version of it. Citizenship, education, Ivy League schools, publications, being a consultant at the White House, all of that stuff. That is trash. That is dog excrement next to knowing Christ in Paul's words. All of that stuff is you can just chuck it. I don't need it. I need Christ. I need the gospel. Paul surrendered all that he could, and he could have boasted in all of this. He could have boasted in all of this. And he surrendered it for the much better thing, which was knowing Christ today. And I want to ask a couple of reflections on this. Just two, just two reflection questions that have been striking to me as I've been marinating on this this week. This is, I want you to think about this. I want you to maybe discuss them in tribes or community groups or to your spouse or whatever. But really think about this. Are sources of fleshly confidence in your life, whatever they might be for you. I, I gave a list earlier, but there could, be a, there could be a million other things. Are sources of fleshly confidence in your life more compelling and more beautiful to you than Christ? If you're really honest with yourself, would you rather be able to boast in fleshly confidence in your life than to boast in knowing Christ? Or do sources of fleshly confidence pale in comparison to the beauty of knowing Christ and what, what God has done for us in Christ today? Secondly, are you or are we corporately, publicly, it's not always an individual thing, right? Are we willing to face the prospect of a similar life as Paul faced? Possibly suffering and loss and ostracization and pain. Are we willing to possibly face that in exchange for knowing Christ today? I think these questions are related. They get at a lot of our uh, core, I think core struggles, at least speaking for myself. Man, I'd ra- <laughs> fleshly confidence sounds good sometimes. I'd rather just be safe there. I really believe that all this was possible. Paul is modeling something that he wants so dearly for the Philippians, and he wants it so dearly for us today. To be so enraptured and overtaken by the beauty of Christ, by the beauty of the gospel, that we can trash all that other stuff. I also want to. I want to be clear too. Sometimes you can you can go down this road of these this message, and you can go down a road as which to, in which to say, if someone has anything like any external markers that they could boast in, if someone has if someone has the Ivy League credentials, if someone has the publications, if someone has the influence, and that means they're not taking the gospel seriously enough, you can go down that road, right? Does this make sense? I want to ward off that, too, because that's just an inverted version of doing the exact same thing. (laughs) That's placing too much weight and confidence in fleshly markers, just in the opposite direction, right? So I wanted to name that as well. Um, All of that stuff. And it's why Paul's elsewhere says in my previous sermon, I talked about this. He can be in plenty. He can be in lack. He can be in comfort. He can be in discomfort. He can be in either case because he has Christ and he's clung to the cross and the resurrection. So I really believe that all this is possible for Paul, Paul's posture here, Paul's words here, what he's modeling for us and for the Philippians. It's all possible because he has been captivated and remade. He is a new creation, he's a new person because of his encounter with the living Christ. And his encounter with the living Christ showed him that though Christ was, it's reminiscent of chapter 2 in Philippians, which Jordan talked about a few weeks ago. Christ himself was equal with God. 
Christ had equality with God within his grasp and did not grasp at that status or privilege and emptied himself. I have an image up here. This is what that emptying ultimately ended up in, right? The Greek term for this, the, the theological term for this is kenosis, the emptying of Christ. Despite his possible grasping unto equality with God. So Paul is able to model this because Christ modeled it and, Christ, and he encountered Christ and was remade fundamentally by him. And that's what Paul wants for us. Christ's emptying, first and foremost, Christ's kenosis, Christ's emptying makes possible our own emptying today. Christ's new life makes possible our own new life today because Christ showed us that resurrection is on the other side of this emptying. See, all of our strivings, all of our anxiety-fueled scraping at our own sources of assurance, our insecure, defensive maneuverings to assert our own worth, our own acceptability, our own value, all of that stuff, which we all do. And I, man, I, I am the, I, like Paul, I'm the worst of sinners in this area. Chief, chief of sinners. But all of that, it's ultimately rooted in a lack of trust that what we need has already been done, been secured, and been finished and accomplished in Christ. To the extent that we keep grasping, to the extent that we keep maneuvering, we keep looking for worth, we keep looking for assurance. Our display of that is a display that we don't trust that what we need has actually been done. Our assurance is available. It's locked in. (laughs) It's there. Nothing can change that. What's left for us then in faith, and Paul goes on in the rest of this chapter, or in the rest of this next section of this chapter, goes on to say, strain for what is ahead. In the knowledge of this, look forward, strain ahead. It's actually very fitting. We're, we're going to have a meeting after this um, service about the future of, of Miss Day, And I was just thinking about this language of like straining for what's ahead. Look for what is ahead. Move ahead. Act. Live in this truth. This isn't, a, this isn't a license to just relax and do nothing. Far from it. The exact opposite, actually. Because our assurance is locked in, because it's available to us, what's left then is for us to live in faith and loyalty to the risen Christ. To strain ahead. To finish the race. In the knowledge that nothing can change this for us. To live really to live with, not reckless abandon, but to live in the abandon that comes from knowing you're fully loved and fully transformed and free to trash all of your boastly confidence, the things you can boast in. You're free to live in that. To surrender our identities, to consider our accomplishments as take it or leave it. What matters is loyalty to the crucified and risen Christ. In the light of his glory and his grace here, We can, I believe, strive forward to what lies ahead. Because what lies ahead for us is on faith. We we claim in faith resurrection and new life. So I want to transition to communion now. Um, We're not going to sing a song because of... um, because of the meeting afterwards. We're not going to sing a song after we take communion, but I'm going to take... uh, spend a few minutes on communion... Um, before we transition. So if I could have um, one or two LT members come up and hand out um, the cups, that'd be great. Maybe Yes, Sarah, thank you. Enjoy, thanks. Um, Sarah and Joy are going to come around.
and give you a cup, which has uh, a wafer and juice in it. I ask you to wait until everyone has received one, and I'll guide us through taking communion together. But in light of everything that I've shared this morning, I want to encourage us to approach this act. So it's funny, right? This act is an external physical act. I've been talking a lot about external physical things. (laughs) Um, But this act, this action, is calling us back to the fact that nothing we have done nor could do could secure and accomplish what Christ did, what God did in Christ on the cross and in the empty tomb. This act points to, symbolizes the broken flesh, the spilled blood of Christ. Which again, is not something that we, it's not something we earned or summoned for ourselves. It's something that God offers us and offered to us and is still offering to you today. And so we do this act. We do this every week here at Missio Day as a way to repeatedly and in rhythm kind of bring our lives back to this central truth. And so I encourage you to, um, actually maybe I'll put up those questions again. Maybe take a minute, oh, thank you. Take a moment, as I, as I guide us through this in the next second, take a moment to reflect on these questions. I'm going to read them one more time, and then I'm going to instruct us to take the elements together. Are sources of fleshly confidence in your life more compelling to you than Christ? And are you, are we, willing to face the prospect of a life like Paul's, a life of loss in some ways, in exchange for the better thing the deeper truth, the more glorious thing of knowing Christ today. However you answer those questions, whatever comes to mind for you, I encourage you to, uh, even right now in this moment, take them to the Lord in this act. And as you do, take this knowing that his body was broken, his blood was spilled for you, for the new creation of the world, for the ultimate redemption of the heavens and the earth, of which you are invited to be a part. Know that that was done, that he did it. And that there's nothing you could do to summon it or to make it happen on your behalf. But he still did it, and he still offers it to you. So as Christ told his followers on his last night, take and eat. He said, this is my body broken for you, and this is the blood of the new covenant spilled, of which I will not drink until I drink it with you in the new creation. I invite you to take the wafer, dip it into the juice, and take the elements now in remembrance of him. Let me pray for us, um, and then uh, after I pray, uh, Danny is going to come up and give us a couple short announcements and some instructions about the transition to our meeting. Um, I'm aware that this feels a little sudden. Like I said, this is a little bit shorter um, than we typically handle the end of the service. Um, but I encourage you to talk to me, talk to some of the other leaders at the church um, if things have been stirred up in you, if you, want, if you want time to process things that have come up. This doesn't need to be the end of that conversation, in other words. Let me pray for us. Lord, I simply want to repeat my prayer at the beginning of the beginning of this sermon, Lord. I pray that your beauty and goodness would be more real and more compelling and more attractive to us than sources of fleshly confidence in our lives. Whether that's individually or even as a church, Lord, a a church can fall into that same trap. I pray that as Missio Day, we do not brag, find ourselves boastful or prideful in fleshly markers, fleshly outward badges that we could boast in, Lord, but that we would consider it all rubbish, trash, in the light of knowing you. 
Lord, we need your spirit to do this renewing work in us. To equip us to be faithful, allegiant, loyal to your crucified and risen son. I pray that we would be the people of God in our city. That we would be so renewed and equipped and, and, and enlivened by your gospel that you would use us to enliven others. Bring others to knowledge of their Father who art in heaven. Pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit today. Amen. Amen.